Good morning, River Rock Bible Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. So excited for everyone to be here this morning as we complete our series on the family fixer-upper. We started this series a few weeks ago and we began by looking at the roles of the husband and the wife and we said, hey, if wives would follow the biblical model that God has laid out for us, that God has given us a pattern of what he wants the family to look like in scripture, and if we would follow that, that what we would see is that we would see our, our husbands changed by faith. If we lived by faith, we can change our husbands by changing ourselves first. And, and then we talked to the men the following week and said, look, if we would live by faith, carrying out the model that God has given us as a husband, fulfilling that role that God gives us, then by faith, we would see our families change and our wives would be changed. And then last week, we dove in and we looked at our kids and what our kids need for, from us. And we said that if we would follow this biblical model of parenting our children, then we would see our children's changed by faith. And that's been our desire, is that we would look to Scripture. Remember, we talked about the the jigsaw puzzle in the very first message, and we said that our family is like the jigsaw puzzle. And the most important piece of the jigsaw puzzle is not the corner piece, it's not the edge piece, it's not the last piece, but it's actually the picture on the box. And in order for us to, to really put the puzzle together, we've got to follow the picture on the box, and that picture on the box is the Word of God. And we use that to understand how we fit together as a family, how we function as a family. And this morning, as we finish out our series, we're going to talk about how do we pass on our faith, how do we pass on this model to the following generations, that we could change generations by faith, that we could see generation after generation after generation deciding, choosing that they are going to base their marriages, that they are going to base their families, that they are going to base the way that they raise their children on the Word of God. That we would see more men, women, and children coming to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of godly families. And I understand as we talk about passing the torch to different generations, as we talk, talk about changing generations by faith, that everyone here this morning is at a different stage of life. Some of you are here this morning and you are not yet in that parenting phase, and so you're like, not really sure how this applies to me, I don't have kids yet, but hang in there with us because someday you might. And at the same time, the principles we're going to talk about, I believe you can apply those to different areas of your life. Some of you are here and you're just getting started. You've got young kids like myself and you're thinking, man, this is what I need to hear. I need to know how I can bring my kids up and how I can hopefully send them out having made the faith their own. Others of you may be here, your kids are a little bit older and you're feeling like maybe it's a little too late and I want you to know that it's not. It's not too late. Others of you have grown kids, and now you have grandkids, and your kids aren't walking with the Lord. And uh, perhaps there's some guilt that goes along with that. Like perhaps you feel that maybe there's something that you did wrong, maybe there's something that went wrong along the way, and you're feeling guilty about that. Maybe you have teenagers that are not choosing to follow the Lord, and you're feeling guilty about that. And and this morning, I just want to relieve you of some of that guilt, because I believe that more than likely, for Christian parents, our guilt comes from a misunderstanding of a passage that many of you are going to know as soon as I say it. As soon as I read this passage, I think you're going to know what I'm talking about. Um, So this morning as we start, let's look at a devastating myth. And that devastating myth is this, that a godly home guarantees godly kids. And we get this a lot of times from a passage that is completely misunderstood, Proverbs 22.6. It says, uh, Proverbs 22.6, teach a youth 
about the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many of you have heard that verse before and thought, wow, if I just raise my kids right, then when they get old, they'll be perfect. They won't have any problems. And the problem with that is that this is a proverb and not a promise. A proverb is something that is generally true and understood to be true about the world, but it's not a guarantee. The idea here, the first part of that, it says, it says that uh, if you teach a youth or train a youth, if you, if you instruct them in the way that they ought to go, the idea is that you are narrowing their path. This word that's used here, Tanakh in the Hebrew, is the same word that's used of dedicating the temple. It's the same word that's used when they dedicate the altar to the Lord. It's the same word that's used when they rebuild the walls and they dedicate the walls. It's this idea that you're setting your kids aside for a special purpose, that they would be used by God. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to go into ministry or be full-time pastors or missionaries or anything like that, but you're recognizing that whatever they do, wherever they go, that God's desire is that he would be able to use them in that way, whether they're a doctor or a teacher or whatever they do, a professional athlete, that God would use them in that way, that you would have trained them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the idea of narrowing their path. You're narrowing their path towards godliness and away from evil. That's the idea that we have here. And there's, a, there's another little aspect of this phrase that's used, train up a child in the way he should go. Now, some people think that phrase, in the way he should go, means that you're pointing them towards Christ, and it absolutely means that. But there's another understanding of it outside of the, the biblical context, immediate context, where it's often used to describe training a child according to their personality according to their giftedness, according to the way that God has designed them as a unique human being, as a unique person. And any of you, if you have more than one kid, then you know that kids are completely different, and they respond differently, and that our job as parents is to figure out how do we shepherd them, how do we point them to Jesus Christ according to their unique giftedness, according to their unique personalities. And no one knows this better than parents of multiples. Right? A man and I have five, they're now five-year-old triplets. We've got some cute pictures of them here. This is when they were real little bitty. Right after we had moved to Austin, aren't they just the most beautiful kids you've ever seen? Uh, I love that picture. Uh, but we've got three kids, all born, exact same age, right? Born at the same time, 30 seconds apart. They have the same set of parents. We do the same things with every single one of them. We have the same expectations. But what we found is that the way that we go about getting those expectations has to be different for every single one of them. We have one who is extremely active. And so we've, we've got to figure out a way. How do we get him to behave? How do we recognize that, okay, this isn't a disobedience thing. This is just, boy needs to be up running around. He needs to move. Like, he needs to be moving while he's doing the reading. He's not trying to disobey. He's not trying to not pay attention when we're doing school, but he just needs to be moving, standing up. We've got another one who, uh, it's, it's funny because we could tell their personalities from the time they were inside the womb. Uh, I can remember when we named them, and it was the night before we went in, and Amanda was going to have the surgery, the kids were going to be delivered the next morning, and I, and I knew she was going to be on drugs, so I was like, okay, which one is which name? And she's like, this one, the girl, obviously, is Charlotte, easy to remember since we have one girl and two boys. And I said, all right, which one A, B, which one's, which one's Bear, which one's Malachi? And she's like, this one's Malachi because, you know, he's the one that never moves. 
He's really relaxed. And this one over here is Bear, because he's always moving. And guess what? When they came out, Bear was always moving. The boy, I'm not kidding you, we were rolling him from the delivery room to the NICU, and his eyes are wide open, and he's looking around like this. And the nurses are like, this is not normal for a 32-week-old baby, you know, like 32 weeks, born at 32 weeks. This is not normal. You've got to keep your eye on this one. And uh, man, the kid is active. He loves to go fast. I'm raising a little Ricky Bobby, right? He just wants to go fast. And he loves that. And we have to shepherd him according to his personality. So that means sometimes discipline is a little different. Because what works with one kid doesn't work with the other kid. It doesn't motivate them. You can spank one of our kids and they're like, eh. But you say, hey, bring me all your matchbox cars. And he's like, no! I'll behave, I promise. So we have to parent them. We have to shepherd them according to their personalities. We have to think about what is going to work for each individual child. But what we've got to really understand is that even when we do that, even when we do our best, this is not a guarantee that they will turn out to be godly children. Because at some point along the way, they make the decision for themselves. They have to choose whether or not they're going to follow the Lord. They have to choose on their own. It's on us to do the best we can to raise them according to the Word of God. But eventually, there comes a point where they make their own decision. I read a humorous, humorous article a few weeks ago, and it said, uh, it said, after 12 years of quarterly attendance, parents are shocked at their daughter's lack of faith. Right? So... 12 years of quarterly church attendance, they're, they're shocked at their daughter's lack of faith. You guys catch that? Like they're coming to church once every, every three months, and they're surprised that their daughter has not taken hold of the faith. Now that is not instilling in them, that is not directing them in the way they should go. You got to make your faith a priority. Your kids need to see you sitting down with an open Bible. Your kids need to hear you say, I know you have a game today, but... Uh, it conflicts with church. I know you have this activity, uh, but we've got community group tonight, and we're going to prioritize our faith, and we're going to make this a priority. They need to hear that from you. They need to see you sitting down. They need to hear you praying with and over them. But ultimately, again, once we've done our part, if we can honestly say, Lord, I have been faithful, I've done everything I can, yet my child has still walked away from you, we need to not feel guilty. Here's what it says in Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, verse 20. It says, The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. Now, I know some of you hear this verse, and immediately you think about, well, what about the verses that say that I will visit the sins of the father to the second and third and fourth generations? Well, we're talking about two separate things here. Those verses where it talks about God visiting the sins of the father onto the third and fourth generations, it's talking about parents who mislead their children. And actually, if you look in Deuteronomy, what he's talking about there, he says, look, if you don't worship the Lord, if you train your children, if you yourself go and worship idols, and thereby train your children to worship idols, guess what they're going to do when they grow up? They're going to worship idols. They're not going to follow me because you have not trained them in that way. So God is saying, look, if your pattern is to not follow the Lord, you can't expect that your kids will follow the Lord. In this passage in Ezekiel, he's talking about personal responsibility. God is saying, look, I do not count the father's righteousness towards the kids. Your kid at some point has to decide for themselves to put their trust in Jesus Christ. 
the same way that your, your mama's faith does not save you. you. You understand that? Your mom's, your grandmother's faith, no matter how faithful she was, does not save you. At some point, you personally must decide, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone is my Savior. And if you've not done that today, I would love to talk to you after the service. There's no reason why you should wait another day and not know whether or not you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that we would love to see happen in every single person's life in this room and throughout the city of Georgetown and throughout the world is that they would put their trust in Christ because you have an individual responsibility. And so as a parent, I just want to encourage you that if you have done your part, if you have raised your children according to the faith and they walk away, you need to relieve yourself of the guilt that you feel for them not walking with the Lord because at some point we, ha- we have to take responsibility for ourselves. It's not your fault. You've got to let the guilt go. You've got to let the guilt go because ultimately what we've got to understand is that there is a frustrating truth and that truth is that parents have great influence but not ultimate control. Parents have great influence but not ultimate control. Think about Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the first children created by God on earth. They have the perfect heavenly father as their example, and we still find rebellion. We still find that even though God is perfect in all of his ways, his human children are not perfect. They still choose to rebel. They're living in the perfect circumstance. And then shortly after we read about that, we get to the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel didn't have cable TV to influence them. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have peers that were influencing them to do bad things. Yet what do we read about Cain? Cain gets angry and he strikes his brother. He rebels. He rebels and he's living in an almost perfect circumstance. I think most of us, if we could raise our kids away from any ungodly influence, like that would be amazing. We would think our kids would turn out perfectly, yet we see that even in this story, in the best of circumstances, there is still rebellion. We've got to understand that as parents, we have great influence, but we do not have ultimate control. Rebellion can happen even in the best of circumstances. And so we find this warning uh, in Proverbs 21, in verse 31. This is what Solomon says. He says, A horse is prepared for the day of of battle, but victory comes from the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory comes from the Lord. Our responsibility as parents is to prepare our kids for the battle. But ultimately, the outcome, whether or not they walk with the Lord, is out of our hands. We cannot control that. And I can tell you, the more you do try to control that, uh, the further you're going to push your child away from the Lord. We don't, uh, we don't bring our, our children, we don't force our children into faith. It's not something we have the ability to do. We can lead them there but we can't make them put their trust in Jesus Christ. We've got to understand that we've got great influence. Great influence, but we don't have ultimate control. Our job is to prepare them for the battle. We can't be absent from their spiritual lives. We've got to make sure that they are prepared. So how do we do that? How do we prepare our kids for the battle? I want to give us five points, five things that we can do to prepare our children for the battle that they are going to face. And even if we do these five things, I want to remind you again, these are not a guarantee. These are not a guarantee. But if we can follow through on these things, 
we, we at least know that they're prepared, that they're prepared, and if they choose not to walk with the Lord, that that's their own choice. But we have prepared them. So the first thing we can do to prepare our kids for the battle is to fight for a strong marriage. We have to fight for a strong marriage. Now, it's easy to fall in love. Like, I can remember being in college. I saw my wife at the back of the cafeteria. The sun was shining down. It was like this little halo that was appearing. Uh, And I fell in love immediately. I fell in love. I can remember we went on a date, and one of the waitresses, the hostess at the restaurant said, oh, look, they're Twitter-pated. Like, if you remember Bambi, then you know what that means. But, uh, and I'm still Twitter-pated by her. Like, it's easy to fall in love, but it's difficult to have a strong marriage at times. And what we've got to commit to as husband and wife, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to commit to, to as a family, as a church body, that we are going to fight with each other, for each other, but not against each other. We're going to fight with each other and for each other, but not against each other. We're going to let our kids see how committed we are to our marriage. And I know that there are some here this morning that maybe you are divorced or you, you've been divorced and you're now remarried, and I want you to know that um, that is, is not the unforgivable sin, that you should never feel like, like you're some sort of second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, and if anyone at any church has ever made you feel that way, uh, I, I'm sorry that that, that has happened. Because God, God understands that life circumstance happens, and God loves you, and that is not the unforgivable sin. But what God calls you to is that where you are right now, if you're remarried, that you would fight for that to be a strong marriage. That you would set the example for the world around you to be a strong marriage. And that if you're not remarried, or if you're single at this point, that you would set the example of, of the value of marriage by being faithful to the Lord in your purity while you're single. That you would demonstrate how much you value marriage, how much you value the potential for your your future husband or your future wife by maintaining your purity when you're single. In Malachi chapter 2, this is the section, many of you are familiar with this section where God talks about he hates divorce. Now, again, I want to reiterate this. God says, I hate divorce. Never does he say, I hate divorced people. Never does he say that. I want to make that absolutely clear. And if you've been through a divorce or you're from a family that's experienced divorce, you know why God hates it, because it hurts, because of the pain that it causes. But you've got to understand that God loves you and cares about you. But in this section where Malachi the prophet is speaking on God's behalf about about divorce. He's talking about the relationship that he has with his people, and he's using this image of marriage. And he says this in verse 15, Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourself carefully and don't act treacherously against the wife of your youth. He's using this image of marriage between God and the people to say, look, God wants you to be one. He wants you to stay together. He wants you to be united so that you will produce godly offspring, a generation after you that will honor the Lord. And it's the same in our marriage because our marriage offers us and our children and the world around us a picture of our relationship with God that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would be strong. And that our children would see that. And they would see the faithfulness of the Lord to us. And they would understand that God, uh, God, values, God values us. God values that relationship. And that we would be able to demonstrate that to them. So we've got to fight 
for a strong marriage. We've got to fight for a strong marriage. The second thing we have to do is we have to model respect for authority. We have to model respect for authority. This, I believe, is the key for spiritual obedience in our kids. Our kids, are our oldest triplets are five, and we've got a 19-month-old. And you can ask them what we expect from them, and they will tell you, mommy and daddy expect us to obey the first time with a happy heart. The first time with a happy heart. Why do we expect that from them? Because that's what God expects from us. God expects us to obey him the first time with a happy heart. And so we expect that from our children because if they cannot honor you who they can see and who is directly in front of them, who's giving them instruction, how in the world will they ever obey an invisible God who speaks with a still small voice through the Holy Spirit and says, don't do that, or I want you to go here? How will they ever learn to obey when they cannot obey us who are standing right in front of them? So at times, we have to remind our kids that they have to obey us, that that's the expectation, and, and they understand what the consequence is. Like, I'll be honest, I'll be upfront with you in our house, we spank, we have a little wooden spoon, we call it rod, as in the rod of instruction, and the kids know that if they don't obey the first time with a happy heart, that rod is going to visit them. And they, they understand that, they know that. And we always sit down with them and we say, okay, why, why are you getting those spanking? Because I didn't obey. That's right, because you disobeyed. Did you obey with a happy heart? No. Okay, this is why you're getting a spanking. And then we tell them, do you know why you have to obey the first time with a happy heart? Because someday God is going to call you to do something and you're going to have to obey him the first time with a happy heart. And I know that the pain of disobeying the Lord, being outside of his will for them, is far worse than the little sting of that little wooden spoon. And I want them, that when God calls them, that they would obey the first time with a happy heart. Now, what does a happy heart look like? Uh, If we tell them to clean their room, and they walk up the stairs to go clean their room, and they're stomping, like, that is not a happy heart. That will get you back downstairs in front of Daddy just as fast as saying, no, I'm not going to clean my room. First time with a happy heart. In Proverbs 24, we read this. Let me get there real quick. lost my place. I'll just read it off the screen. It says, my son, fear the Lord as well as the king and don't associate with rebels for their destruction will come suddenly. Who knows what disaster these two can bring? Fear the Lord as well as the king. Solomon is warning his son. He's saying, look, you need to obey those in authority over you because you've got to recognize that God has put these people in authority over you. And as parents, we've got to model this for our kids. We've got to model this for our kids, not only expecting that honor and that reverence from them, but we've got to understand that what we do in parenting more is caught than taught. And so when little Johnny doesn't get enough playing time in t-ball, and we storm out there and we yell at the coach, or a ball is called a strike when it should have been a, you know, a strike and it's called a ball and vice versa, and we go out and we yell at the umpire, what are we teaching them about authority? What are we teaching them about how to honor and obey and respect authority. We can disagree, absolutely, but we need to do it in a respectful way. We need to do it in a respectful way. We've got to model that. My favorite, many of you are teachers in here. Um, Some of you know what it's like. My wife has been a teacher, and we understand that little, little Susie comes home with a C, and first thing, Mama Bear comes out. Mama Bear comes up in the classroom. Why did little Susie get a C? 
because little Susie can't do math. Maybe you ought to spend more time with little Susie rather than up here yelling at the teacher. But what is modeled for Susie? What's modeled for Susie is that when she doesn't like something that happens, she gets to go and spit on the authority that's been placed over her and yell at her teacher and blame the teacher for her bad grades. We've got to model that authority, that respect for our kids. In Ephesians 6, 4, Paul, Paul tells, instructs the kids, he says, Honor your father and mother, for this is the command, first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother. So moms, dads, you have got to demand honor from your kids. Not because you're something special, but because how, again, how will they ever learn to honor the Lord unless they learn to honor you? You've got to demand that honor from them. You've got to demand it. Grandparents, do everything you can to help your kids uh, get that honor from their kids. Expect the same honor from, from your grandkids. Um, my dad is a joker. He likes to tell jokes. He likes to mess around with the kids, and, um, you know, he'll tease them and, and things like that. And I can remember, I, I forget what it was, or, but he said something, and they started, you know, he was calling them a name, and so they started calling him a name. And I said, nope, we're not going to do that. I said, I know you're playing, but you're not going to disrespect your grandfather that way. We're just not going to play that way. I don't want to set him up for that. We've got to instruct our kids. We've got to show them by modeling respect for authority. Modeling respect for authority. Number three, we've got to value character above performance. We've got to value character above performance. In, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel is out and he is looking for the next king. Saul has disobeyed and God sends him out. He says, look, I want you to go and I want you to anoint a new king. And so Samuel's going around and he's, he's shown up at um, David's dad's place and David has all these older brothers. And so his dad brings out all the older brothers and, and this is what, what God says to Samuel. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or stature because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart. We've got to understand that what matters to God is not our child's performance in the classroom or on the sports field. What matters is his heart. What matters is her heart. God is much more concerned with our child's character than he is with their abilities. I think it's interesting if you go and you look at the qualifications of an elder, and really I, I would say if you look at First Timothy and Titus and you look at those qualifications for what God expects for the people who are going to be leading his church, those are great quali- qualifications, those are great characteristics of anyone who strives to be a mature believer, a mature follower of Jesus Christ. When you look at those, I think there's 17 in Titus, there's 15 in First Timothy, Almost every single one of those are character qualities. I can think of only one that has to do with skill. What does that tell you about God's value for character versus skill? So moms and dads, um, we've got to understand that sports, I love sports. I hope my kids love sports as they're growing up. I hope they get to play and have as much fun as I did. I'm not against sports. Don't ever think that. But I think we need to rethink how we view sports. We need to view sports as an opportunity to build character in our kids, not as an opportunity for them to get some scholarship or to show off how athletic our kid is compared to some other kid. What if instead of thinking about the trophies that our kid's going to get at the end of the season, we talk to them more about 
hey, did you, did you play well as a team? Do you guys feel like you got better as a team? Do you feel like you respected your coach today? You know, was there anything that you would do differently? How, how are you building their character? How are you handling those situations when, when your kid is upset because they didn't get playing time? Or because they struck out three times in one game? Are you teaching them to handle those things? Are you teaching your kid that, that man, I, I know you're struggling in the classroom, but that's okay because I see that you're working hard. Not everyone is going to be good at math. Not everyone is going to be good at science. But look, you've got a hundred in language arts. You're a phenomenal writer. You're doing a great job, and I know you're working hard. It's okay that you've got to see. It's all right. Or do you put undue pressure on them because you're concerned about performance? We've got to value character above performance. Next, fourth, we've got to take a genuine interest in their world. Philippians chapter 2, Paul instructs us, he says, each one of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. And he goes on and he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, guess what? Guess who the, the others includes? When it says, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others, who does that others include? It includes your kids. It includes your kids. And he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In John chapter 1, we read about how Jesus, God himself, the Son of God, comes to earth and he takes on flesh and he walks our walk and he talks our talk so that he could relate to us. We've got to be willing to do the exact same thing with our own children. We've got to take a genuine interest in what they're interested in. And sometimes this is hard. This is difficult. Many of you may know, I think maybe I've mentioned it before, not a huge soccer fan, right? Not a huge soccer fan. I didn't play it growing up, never played it, don't understand it. Just like not really the thing that I would choose to do. Well, last year, the kids wanted to play soccer. They could all be on the same team. So what did we do? We signed them up for soccer. And not only did we sign them up for soccer, but daddy coached the team. Because they wanted to play, and I wasn't going to miss it. And I wanted them to know how much I love them. Last Sunday, I'm sitting on my couch. Typically on Sunday when I flip through the channels and I'm just kind of like vegging out, I skip Fox on purpose because I have a son. Like I said, he's a little Ricky Bobby. He wants to go fast. Anything that's a race, he wants to be a part of it. And I know on Sundays there's NASCAR, and if he sees race cars, guess what we're going to end up watching? We're going to end up watching race cars. But last Sunday, I made the mistake, and I accidentally landed on Channel 44, and what do you know? There's a NASCAR race on, and Bear gets all excited. He's like, Daddy, Daddy, there's race cars. Can we watch the race cars? Yeah, son, we can watch the race cars. We can watch the race cars. So we sat there for hours upon hours upon hours watching the race cars. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it, but he loves it. In fact, we both fell asleep. He fell asleep on me, and then I fell asleep. And we woke up. We watched the last, like, 32 laps. And the rest of the day, he talked about, Daddy, do you remember that race? Who won the race? And I was like, I don't know. We're going to have to look it up. I, I just know the race is over, and I celebrated. Uh, <laughs> but I took a genuine interest in what he loves, and it meant the world to him. It meant the world to him that I would just spend some time doing something that he likes to do. So parents, you may not be interested in whatever it is your kid likes, 
but take a genuine interest. Show them that you care. Demonstrate that you are willing to put their needs, their desires ahead of your own at times. Model the attitude of Christ to your children in that way. The last thing we have to do as parents to prepare our kids for battles is we have to pick our battles. We have to pick our battles. We've got to pick our battles wisely. Colossians 3.21 says this. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not become what? Discouraged. So they won't become discouraged. When you're constantly fighting with your children, especially teenagers, and you're constantly having battle after battle after battle, what's going to happen if you're the one who always wins? They're going to get discouraged. Now, like I said, I've got little kids, so our battles are a little bit different, uh, but I guess it's very similar to teenagers. Our battles are actually over clothes a lot of the times. Uh, It's like we're just happy when they have them on. Uh, You know, you can't run around the house in your Spider-Man underoos. You've got to put clothes on. And so when they put clothes on that don't match, you know, the red Spider-Man shirt with, like, the the plaid. No, this week it was Minnie Mouse. My daughter wanted to wear this red Minnie Mouse shirt with, like, green and pink plaid shorts that did not at all match. But that's what she wanted to wear. These are my favorite shorts, and this is my favorite shirt. So what do you mean they don't go together? And it was like, well, you got clothes on, so let's just get out the door. You know, we weren't going to fight that battle. We just weren't going to fight that battle. It wasn't worth fighting. We let her win. We let her win that one because it was not a battle worth fighting. A lot of times I learned this trick from my mom uh, when the kids were real little because you tell them, go put your shoes on, and sometimes when they're toddlers, what do they say? No, right? Well, we want to set our kids up for success. So we say, do you want to wear the sandals or do you want to wear the tennis shoes? And now they have this illusion that they're getting to choose and they're in charge. So they're like, I want to wear the tennis shoes. Great. We got shoes on. We're out the door. So there's a little handy trick for you parents of young kids. Um, When I was a youth pastor, I remember up in Colleen, there was a family, military family. The son was really into skateboarding. And he got really into the skateboarding culture, which kind of scared the mom because that culture, you know, there's lots of stuff that take place in the skateboarding culture. The music's not always the best. And so she had to pick her battles. She's like, all right, you can have the skateboard and you can wear the baggy shorts, but you're not going to listen to that style of music unless it's Christian music. And you're not going to wear any shirts or any clothing that have offensive things on them. And so she had to pick her battles. She picked her battles and their son is now a godly man. Um, and he's thankfully grown out of like the super baggy shorts that look like pants because they're so long and, and you know, you're running holding your shorts like this. He's grown out of that, and, uh, but if she had fought those battles, it would have just pushed him further and further and further away. So you've got to learn to pick your battles. You don't want your children to be discouraged. We have a great responsibility as parents. We've got to remember that we can't control the outcome. We have great influence but we don't have ultimate control. And so if you're here again this morning, maybe you have grown kids that have have chosen not to follow the Lord. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to understand, even as an adult, you still have great influence on them. You still have the opportunity to influence your grandkids and to demonstrate what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that you're here this morning, you're either engaged in battle, you will be engaged in battle, or perhaps... Now you're past that stage where you're engaged in battle for your kids and, and you're now engaging in that battle for your grandkids. And I would say the, the one thing 
The most important thing that's not listed here this morning is the power of prayer. That you would commit every single day to praying for your children, to praying that, number one, that they would trust Christ while they're young. Number two, that their faith would become their own before they leave the house, which is hopefully like 18, 19, not 27, right? No boomerangs. And, and the last thing is pray for their future spouse. Pray for their future spouse. Um, this is something that a man and I have committed ourselves to. We pray every single day for these things. Um, and at the end of the day, we ultimately know that we are not in control, that we've got to trust God for the outcome. We're doing our part, but we've got to trust God for the outcome. Uh, I want to I encourage you again, if you're here and you don't have kids, think through how you can apply these things to your own life and the people that are around you the ways that you can impact someone else's life, whether that's a classmate or someone at work. Uh, But really, moms and dads, I I challenge you. I give you a charge to take these five things and begin putting them into practice this week, trusting God in the battle for your children. At this time, we'd like to take two. This is something we do every week. And you'll see in your bulletin there, there's a little spot that says take two. And it's just an opportunity for you to write down something that God is saying to you this morning. And then beneath that, write down what you're going to do about it this week. Now, it may be something that was said during the message. It could have been something that God showed you through one of the songs that we sang or perhaps a conversation you had. Maybe it was something that happened before you even got here that God began to speak to you. I just want to encourage you to, to write something down. What is God saying to you today? And what are you going to do about it? Let's take two.